Good morning. I'm going to be sharing from the Old Testament, from the book of Second Chronicles, if you want to be turning there. Our main text will be in chapter 16 of Second Chronicles. Before we go there, though, there's a verse in Romans 15.4 that I want to share. Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Do we need hope today? Does the church need hope? Does our country and our world need hope? Sometimes I see Christians who lose their hope. They get bogged down in the daily grind of life, and they lose sight on eternity and the hope of their salvation. So, And if we're honest, I think sometimes we all have struggles with this sometimes. So our goal is this morning, as we look at an account that took place years ago in the history of our forefathers in the faith, we want to receive instruction, we want to receive encouragement and hope. Our lesson centers around the life of King Asa, and we want to learn from his life. We want to follow his example in what he did right, and we want to learn from his example in what he did wrong, so that we won't repeat his mistakes. Have you noticed that some people have a hard time learning from other people's mistakes? Maybe you have that problem. I certainly did when I was a young teenager. I know a lot of parents experience this with their kids. They give them advice and they refuse to listen. They go down the same road of bad decisions. And when things turn out wrong, they wonder why. And you want to just you know, smack them upside the head and shake them. And don't, why can't you learn from my mistakes? Do you know people like that? Do you have family members like that? Well, God's merciful. He's given us a road map in His Word that will make life much easier and peaceful for us if we would just follow it and learn the lessons that there are in there for us. So we're going to look at the life of King Asa, and that's what we want to do. We want to learn from him. So if you haven't got there yet, we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 16. We're going to do a lot of reading. There's a lot there, and we have to get a lot of context for this. So a little background before we get into chapter 16. When you think of the Old Testament kings, who do you think of first and foremost? King David. Everybody agrees. When David was king, Israel was united and prosperous. Those were the glory days of Israel. After he dies, his son Solomon was king over the United Kingdom. But when Solomon died, there was, a conf- there was conflict, there was division in the land which ultimately led to the separation of the southern kingdom. They broke apart. They became known as Judah. It was named after the tribe of Judah, which along with the tribe of Benjamin had broken away from the other tribes. So now in the context of where we're at in Second Chronicles, there are two kingdoms instead of one. Now the people of both kingdoms had for the most part turned away from God. They had begun to worship idols. In Judah, from the time of Rehoboam to Zedekiah, there were 19 kings, and only eight of them were classified as what we would call good kings. In Israel, for the most part, their kings were all self-seeking men who were classified as evil. Some were better than others, but none ever compared to David. So even though Judah had many faults, the kingdom of Judah was identified with the one true and living God. They continued the temple worship. They had kings that came from David's family line. Two of those kings are mentioned in this chapter, King Abijah and King Asa. 
Abijah was the son of Rehoboam, who was the first king. Abijah only ruled for three years. After Abijah, his son Asa became king. Now you can break down the reign, I guess you would say, of King Asa into three distinct periods. The first period of his reign, I entitled Peace and Victory. Turn back to chapter 14. We'll get a little context. I want to read the first eight verses and we'll see the reign of his life, the first period in chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his place. In his days the land had rest for ten years, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars in the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram, and he commanded Judah to seek the Lord the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours, because we have sought the Lord our God, We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. So you can see this was a great period for the nation. Because of the victory of his father, there was peace in the land for ten years. And he used this time... He used it to lead the people in a national reformation. He cleansed the land of idols. He wisely used a time of peace to fortify the cities and build an army. He did this so that they would be ready when trouble came. And trouble did come. Look on down at verse 9. Azariah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marisha. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephtha and Marshea. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help. Between the mighty and the weak, help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. So you can see here that they were attacked by the Ethiopian army of a million men. They were much larger in numbers than they were. Almost twice as many people. They had 300 chariots. Asa had no chariots. Sounds like they were in a dire situation. But Asa called out to the Lord for help. He did the right thing. He cried out for God. It reminded me of the story of David and Goliath when David was overmatched by the giant Goliath. And do you remember what David said when he came out before the Philistines. He said, you come to me with sword and spear and with javelin, but I come to you what? In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. So in response to Asa's prayer, the Lord provided a sound defeat of the enemy. And after the battle, God goes on. We'll read here in a minute. God sent a prophet Azariah to meet Asa and give him a message of encouragement and warning. Look on down at chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. 
If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you, take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. So we see that many leaders fall into pride and overconfidence after winning a battle. And God didn't want Asa to fall into this trap, so he sent the prophet to warn him. That brings us to the second period in King Asa's reign. I call that the Reformation and Renewal. Look at verses 8 through 15 of chapter 15. It says, As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel. When they saw the Lord his God was with him, they were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, seven hundred oxen, seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting, with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire. And he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. So although he had been ridding the nation of idols and encouraging the people to turn to God, Asa heeded the warning of the prophet and he renewed his energy and his commitment to the task. Verses 10 through 12 show that he gathered the people from all around and they sacrificed and they committed themselves to the covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul. And as I was reading that, I thought, doesn't the church need that today? Don't we need a revival, a recommitment? Asa knew they didn't need to rebuild the temple or start some new program or some gimmick. They had everything they needed. They just needed to recommit themselves, rededicate themselves to what they had already been given. And it says that God was pleased with this because in verse 19 of chapter 15, the chapter closes with these words. He says, and there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. God rewarded them by allowing them some more peace and more rest. And that brings us to the third period of Asa's life, and or Asa's reign, and I call that relapse and discipline. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Chapter 16, that's our primary passage for today. We want to look at what happened to Asa and hopefully learn some lessons from it. So let's continue reading in chapter 16. And we're going to pretty much read the whole section, 14 verses. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, the king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah. 
that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sent them to Benadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Benadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ejon, Dan, Ebalimim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, with which Baasha had been building. And with them he built Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the thirty-ninth year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from the physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the forty-first year of his reign. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier that had been built with various kinds of spices prepared by the perfumer's art, and they made a very great fire in his honor. So we see in the 35th year of King Asa's reign, the Lord sent Baasha, the king of Israel, to war against him. Verse 1 tells us that Baasha fortified Ramah. This was a city about six miles north of Jerusalem. From there, he could institute a blockade against Judah and monitor and control everything and everyone going in and out along this primary route. Now, you would think, knowing Asa's history and how he had called on the Lord before and the Lord had answered him and prospered him in victory, you would think that Asa would have gone to his knees and cry out to the Lord again. But he didn't do it this time. Somewhere over the past several years, Asa had grown careless in his walk with the Lord, and he no longer turned to God, no longer trusted in him. Verse 2 and 3 tell us that instead what he did, he turned to politics. He took money, he took silver, he took gold from the treasury, which would be the temple, and he paid Benadad, who was the king of Syria, to break his alliance with Israel and to go to war against Baasha. Verse 4 tells us that Benadad did exactly this, and he sent his armies, and he conquered several cities. Because of this, Baasha quit fortifying Ramah, and Asa was able to tear down Ramah. And it says he used the material equipment to fortify a couple of his own cities, one to the north of Ramah and one to the east. So, in fact, now Asa has extended his border. He's made his position more secure than before. So if we hadn't read anymore, you would say all is safe, Basha is humiliated, and the king of Asa has peace again in the land, or so it seems. 
But there's a great lesson here. When you look at the outcome of these events, it looks like everything worked out great. What more could you want? They forced their enemies to retreat. They gained a new alliance with Syria. They extended their borders. Everyone was pleased except who? God. Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7 says, At the time Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. This tells us that the Lord was not pleased with the outcome. because Actually, it wasn't the outcome. He wasn't pleased with the way the outcome originated. Because Asa did not rely on the Lord. and he, Instead, he relied on man. He relied on himself. An alliance he made with the king of Syria. And it says because of that, he missed a blessing. The prophet tells them if he had turned and trusted the Lord, that the Lord would not only have protected them from Baasha and Israel, but he would have also delivered the whole entire Syrian army to them. He reminded of him of how with the Lord's help they had defeated the Ethiopians who outnumbered them two to one. When I read this, my first instinct was to think how stupid. How can he go from trusting the Lord, experiencing these blessings and victory, and then the next time a battle or struggle comes up, he kind of goes at it alone. Or in this case, he didn't go out completely alone. He got, he got some help from the king from the king of Syria. But as I thought about that and did some introspection, I thought how stupid I am sometimes too. Because don't we sometimes do that? Sometimes don't we go about solving problems on our own? Why is that? Why is it that we don't automatically turn to the Lord first? We'll talk about it more later, but I think in this case it's because he thinks he had it handled. He didn't need the Lord at that time. He felt like he could handle it. But even in the little things, the Lord wants us to come to Him. He wants us to trust Him. Scripture says, in all things by prayer and supplication. In how many things? All things by prayer and supplication bring your request to Him. This lesson really convicted me. What really convicted me was the fact that the Lord is not pleased even if things turn out right or okay. When I neglect to trust Him and things turn out bad, I repent. I'm genuinely sorry and I recognize it. But I'm afraid that there's many times when I neglect to turn to Him and seek His help and go at it alone and things turn out right that I don't acknowledge the Lord. I probably give the credit to Him and thank Him afterwards even though I didn't seek His help. But a heart totally devoted to the Lord always includes Him. The rest of the story of King Asa's reign unfortunately doesn't get any better. Verse 9 tells us that the prophet declares to King Asa that he acted foolishly, that he would not stay at peace, that he would surely have wars. And what did Asa do? In his anger, he threw the prophet in prison. He oppressed some of the people, probably because the people were supporting the prophet. They probably opposed his foreign policy and the imprisonment of God's servant. God gave Asa time to repent. But he didn't. Verse 12 tells us in the 39th year of his reign, he came down with an ailment, probably gout or something like that. It was an ailment in his feet. So God was trying to discipline and bring him back, but he didn't. We're told that even in his disease that he didn't seek the Lord, but the doctors. And then two years later, it says that he died. 
How very sad of an ending to a life of someone who for many, many years seemed to follow the Lord. This was a man who for the most of his life trusted God, reigned righteously, and then something happened. Something caused him to become careless. I like the way the chapter ended when it described his burial. Verse 14 ends with the words, They made a very great fire for him. And I thought that summed up his final few years on earth. They went up in smoke. He's a perfect example of someone who didn't end well. My desire for the rest of my life is to finish well. Have you known someone who once was on fire for the Lord, was so involved in church and ministry, was always talking about the Lord, in their later years as they matured in age, they grew cold and apathetic to the things of God? It's a sad thing. Scripture speaks to this in the book of Revelation. Remember what... He said to the church at Ephesus, they were chastised for what? For losing their first love. I don't want to be like that. I want to be increasing in my love and my devotion and trust in the Lord. So that, in a nutshell, is the story of King Asa's life. So the challenge to us is, how do we apply this? What can we learn from it? Romans 15:4 that I began with tells us it was written down for our instruction. How do we draw instruction from the life of King Asa? I came up with... Six lessons from the life of King Asa that I think we can learn. I'm sure there's more. The first thing I noticed about this account of Asa's life is that sin is progressive. James 1.14 tells us the nature of sin is progressive. It says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This passage shows the progressive nature of sin. And we all have seen it, if not in our own lives, in people around us. We, you think about sins that are addicting and how progressive they are. What was Asa's first sin? It was kind of basic. He didn't trust the Lord. He didn't turn to the Lord. And then think about what came after that. Bribery, unholy alliance not repenting, anger against the prophet, unjust imprisonment, oppressing the people, trusting in doctors. We're only told about that one sin and then immediately you start seeing more and more and more. And up until this time in his life, he was, from everything we can tell, living pretty righteously and he was reigning pretty righteously. Something happened somewhere along the line. Maybe he became proud in his victories. We don't know exactly what happened, but something did and he strayed off course. And once he sinned, it was a downward spiral from there. As I thought about that, I thought about where does sin begin? It kind of begins in the heart and the mind, doesn't it? Matthew fifteen nineteen tells us, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. That's where sin starts. I thought about the life of Joseph and his brothers. What was the thing that caused them to not like Joseph? It was the coat that was given. It was jealousy, wasn't it? It was something that started in their mind. It was jealousy. They ended up, that turned to anger. Then they plotted to kill him. Then they threw him in a well. Then there was lies. It was kind of a progression, but it started in their, in their hearts and in their minds. Actually, when I was originally putting this lesson together, I had came across a brother who I was talking to, and he actually was telling me he was stuck in a sin. And he was telling me how that as he did it more and more, he became less and less 
concerned about it. it was, his heart became hardened to it to where it didn't even bother him. That is the nature of sin. It is progressive. And if you keep on doing it, you get hardened to it. So that's the first lesson I see from this passage. The second thing I think we should learn from the life of Asa was that when we rely on our own resources, all may go well for a season. If you only read the first few verses of this text, you wouldn't necessarily catch the sin that Asa committed. And some of that is because we live in a pragmatic society. The, ag- the idea of pragmatism is do what works. On the surface, what King Asa did seemed to work. In some ways, many would think he was very shrewd. Instead of risking his own army, he paid someone else to do it. And it worked. They were successful. They defeated the enemy. They, the attackers backed off. They even plundered the city of Ramah, took away the provisions and fortified their own cities with it. If we didn't have the following verses, we may not have really took to heart the sin he committed. And this is where I was convicted. We're all probably guilty of this sometimes. I know I am. It's easy to turn to the Lord when we have big things in our life, things we can't handle. But what about the day-to-day things that we can, on our own, find solutions for? I think this speaks to me about that. Asa came up with a plan. It seemed like a good plan. It worked. Don't we do that? I thought about just simple things like buying a house or buying a car, dealing with people at work, dealing with certain illnesses. We just go through the motions of making solutions and and handling those from day to day. And sometimes we leave the Lord out. Which brings me to the third lesson. When we rely on our own resources, we may miss God's blessing. Verse 7 and 8 tell us that even though on the surface his plan seemed to work, if he had called on the Lord for help instead of the king of Syria then not only would he have defeated Baasha and his army, the king of Syria, and his entire army would have been handed over to him. And if you read the history, you would understand that that would be important because they became a, the Syrian nation and army became a thorn in their flesh for many, many, many more years. He did not make an alliance with a friend. This was an alliance with an enemy. So think about the blessing we might be missing out on when we don't turn to the Lord. When we buy that house or that car without seeking the Lord in the decision, we may think it turned out all right, but we may never know what we missed. We probably won't have a prophet come to us and tell us what would have happened. Maybe that car that we bought that breaks down in a year wouldn't have broken down had we sought the Lord for a different one. Think about all the blessings that we may have been missing had we turned to the Lord. The fourth lesson that I see in this passage is one that boggles the mind a little bit, and it involves God's character. I think the lesson is that we need to acknowledge God's omniscience and omnipresence. Verse 9 tells us that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. Now, these words I just said are theological words. Omniscient means all-knowing. Omnipresent means that God is near, as He's everywhere. Nothing escapes God's notice. King Asa, in his haste to take care of this problem, completely ignored God like He wasn't even there. God's Word tells us that's a foolish thought. I thought of Hebrews 4.13 that says, 
and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Jonah tried to run from God, and we know what happened to him. I love Psalm 139. The whole chapter is really good, but 139, verse 7 through 12 says, Where can I go from thy spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. The Bible is full of examples like these verses that teach us that God is everywhere simultaneously. To think correctly on this subject, you have to not think in terms of time and space. The Bible uses illustrations like moving to and fro just so we can understand it. But God encompasses everything. I don't know that my mind can actually comprehend that. Jeremiah 23:24 says, Do not I feel heaven and earth? And I like what A.W. Tozer said in his book on the attributes of God. He uses an example like this. He said, you need to understand this is to think, think of a bucket being filled with water. But he says, picture the bucket not sitting on the sidewalk being filled, but submerged into the ocean being filled. He said, the bucket is full of the ocean, but the ocean surrounds it in all directions. So when God says he fills heaven and earth, he does. But all heaven and earth are submerged in God. So don't think of God as human and Him seeing everything from afar off. He's near to everyone and everything because everyone and everything is submerged in Him. And I know we all believe this truth and we can all agree that God is everywhere and He knows everything. Nothing escapes His attention. Then the question is, why do we act like it sometimes? That's something for you to ponder. The fifth lesson we need to learn comes from the rest of verse 9. It says, God delights in blessing those who are completely devoted to Him. It doesn't just say the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. There's a reason His eyes move to and fro throughout the earth. It says, so that He may support those whose heart is completely His. And I left out a word. Do you know what it was? Strongly support. Strongly support. Those whose heart is completely His. What a promise that is. God is looking over the entire world, looking for His children who have given their heart over completely to Him so that He can what? Support them. God delights in this. Some people think God delights in punishing people, but that's far from the truth. His delight is in supporting His children. Let me read you a few Psalms. Psalm eighteen nineteen. He rescues me because he delights in me. Psalm thirty seven twenty three. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Psalm forty one eleven. By this I know thou art pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. These verses show that God is pleased that he delights in giving us victory and supporting us. But there's a prerequisite. What is it? He delights in who? Those who have given their heart completely over to him. So another question to ponder is, what does it mean for your heart to be completely given to the Lord? To be fully devoted? What are you holding back? Another question is to ask is what does it mean when God strongly supports us? 
I think it means that He blesses us, that He gives us joy and peace. He provides our needs. He answers our prayers. He holds us up during difficult times. It can mean a lot of things. The sixth lesson and the final lesson, and really the crux of the whole thing, is the lesson that we need to learn is that the folly of trusting in anything else but the Lord. That's really the focal point of the passage. The main lesson we need to take to heart from the life of King Asa Our need, our responsibility, our faith demands it. We are commanded throughout Scripture to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but to acknowledge His ways and He'll direct our paths. That's Proverbs 3, 5. So the whole Bible is a textbook in trusting God. There's another verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 10, 11, that says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it as an unscalable wall. And that verse, the contrast there between the righteous and the rich, is not absolute. We know that there are righteous people who are wealthy. Rather, it shows the contrast between the object of a man's trust. In this context, it's between trusting in God and trusting in money. But we can also see it in a wider principle. For many of us have our fortified cities, things we trust in. What are some of the things we might trust in? Our education, the ability we have to make a good living because of our advanced degree, our training, our special field. It might be our retirement account. I originally wrote Our Good Looks. I think I was younger when I wrote that. (laughs) There's lots of things that we hold up as our fortified city. It might be our family could be a myriad of things. As a nation, it might be our military might, our supply of weapons, our prosperity. Many, many things that we might trust in for our well-being and safety, but they are foolish. And it's important to note that though this does not mean that we are not to disregard the normal means of supply God has given us, we're just not to trust in them. Asa was condemned for trusting in doctors. Does that mean that we don't go to doctors? Of course not. God gives us doctors. Luke was a physician. It was wrong because that's where he placed his trust. God gives us jobs. He gives us a mind and a body to use wisely and productively. But that's not where we are to place our trust. We all know or we should know that it can all change in a moment. Our good health can be taken away in a moment, a serious illness, a car wreck, a violent crime, things we can't even imagine, and it could all change in an instant. One minute we could be healthy and fit, the next we could be in a wheelchair, or we could be in the hospital or on our deathbed. Think about our wealth. Our wealth could dissipate overnight. Many of you know I used to be a stockbroker, and I was in the business back in the 90s when the tech bubble bursted. I saw people whose whole wealth was in a company stock, and they lost it all. 80-90% of their wealth gone in just a few months. Tragedy strikes every day, and lives are changed forever. Everything is temporal. Nothing is truly safe except the Lord. He is our tower and our refuge. To Him alone we should trust. But as we can see from this lesson, it's just as important to trust the Lord in the little things as the big things. 
He wants our whole hearts. He doesn't want us to be a foxhole Christian who just reaches out to him when there's a big event going on in our life. He wants all of us, all the time, our whole hearts. So the question I want to end with is, can we trust him? And there's two parts to the question. Can we trust him in the sense of, is God trustworthy? The answer, of course, is resoundingly yes. How do we know he's trustworthy? Asa knew he was trustworthy. Why? One, he had a history there. He had gone and turned to the Lord before, and the Lord had answered his prayers and heard him, and he was trustworthy. But even if you don't have that history, the Bible tells us the truth. And we can believe it for no other reason that God is trustworthy and that we can trust him. But there's a second part of the question, can we trust him, that's directed at us. Do we have the kind of relationship with him that causes us to trust him completely? Who are the people in the world that you trust the most? It's usually your spouse, your family, your children, your closest friends. If you have trouble trusting God in all areas of your life, you're probably not as close to him as you need to be. The closer to him, the more intimate the relationship, the more you'll trust him. So my challenge to myself and the challenge to you this morning is to grow closer and closer to the Lord and lean more and more on him, to trust him in every life. I want to finish well. I want all of you to finish well. I want him to delight in us, to strongly support us because that we have given our whole hearts completely to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for your word that we have, the written word that we can go to, that we can learn from, that we can apply to our lives. Help us to not be hearers only, but, Father, that we would hear the message from your teaching through Scripture and that we would apply it to our lives and that we would be changed forever because of it. Father, thank you for loving us so much. Father, thank you for supporting us. May we be the kind of people that please you and give our hearts fully devoted to you. And we thank you in advance for the blessings that you will bestow upon us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.